0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning. How's everyone doing this morning? Good, mixed, somewhat, all right. Well, we're starting a new series called Joyful. So I hope we turn that around a little bit and there's a little bit more excitement. How are we doing this morning? Joyful, right? And I, I can't help but say, uh, Jess and Eric, it's a joy to have you with us this morning, uh, leading worship for us. Some of you may know that Jess and Eric uh, lead worship for Ross Carrick Church of Christ, one of our sister congregations, and we like stealing them from time to time to uh, cooperate with us, which is beautiful because one of the themes we're talking about this morning is this idea of fellowship. And fellowship doesn't just happen uh, amidst our own church, but actually fellowship happens from church to church in the wider body of Christ as well. Um, I'm going to pray to start things off, but, but I'm going to delay it a little bit. And here's why. I have a little quiz for you. And I know some of you think you always need to pray before the quiz, right? It's okay. Uh, We're going to click through a few sort of iconic verses in the book of Philippians. Because our series called Joyful is studying, going through this short letter to the Philippian church in the New Testament. And I think that there's sort of an inordinate amount of, of verses that everyone knows and loves in Philippians. And so I'm going to test you, see how you do. No pressure, no stress, all right. So we'll start off right near uh, the beginning of the book in chapter 1. Uh, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to... Okay, it's all right. It's a start. we got six more to go. Completion. Until the day of Christ Jesus. All right, let's move on to the end of chapter one. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is? Oh, that one, a little bit more, right? That's a pretty epic verse. All right, we're gonna skip to chapter two. Your attitude should be the same. That's right, same as that of Christ Jesus. All right, we're gonna go right to chapter four, some of the most quotable verses are in chapter four rejoice in the lord always again i say all right that one i mean you probably could have deduced it even if you didn't know it right from the context hopefully a little bit a few verses later and the this is two part this is a hard one all right and the peace of god which passes transcends full marks all right either one passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus good Very good. All right, 4.13. And I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Ah, I like it. That's someone's favorite verse right there. That's for sure. Okay, last one. This is another really hard one. Two-part one. Right near the end of the letter. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches. Very good. According to the riches of His glory. Someone was right on that one. The riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, if you scored uh, 7 out of 7, you might be feeling pretty good right now, right? I guess it's not even 7 out of 7 because some of them were like two-part. If you scored 10 out of 10, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, nail nailed it. I got this, right? But, but there's a little bit of a danger in that, isn't there? Because if you scored 10 out of 10, you might be sitting there thinking, I don't need to hear a sermon series on Philippians I got this. I know this letter, right? It's old hat to me. What am I going to learn? And so the challenge for you is going to be the opposite. How do you uh, reset yourself? How how do you come to a series like this, maybe having read the letter to the Philippians hundreds or thousands of times in your life, and hear it anew? Hear it afresh again? Trusting that, that actually this, this letter is the Word of God, not just to the Philippians, but actually to us, Oak Parkians, if you will, today. Right? So how can you hear it afresh? And if you got 0 out of 10, there might be this like small wave of panic washing over you right now. The feeling of like, oh, I forgot to do my homework and all those junior high emotions are just flooding back, and it's not a good place to be, right? Don't worry. In fact, it's for you that I am most excited about this series. Because it's for you that, that you will maybe experience this letter for the very first time possibly. and You'll hear the, the depth of beauty and power in these words that, yes, are not just for a church 2,000 years ago, but, but for you in your life. Today, these are, these are words that God has chosen, has destined, has ordained for your life. And we get to hear them. And we get to study them. And We get to, to explore them and we get to go deeper with these words. So, let me pray. And as I pray, I invite you silently just to pray these words along with me. Whether you got 10 out of 10, Or zero out of ten. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me today. Break me. Melt me. Mold me. Fill me. May you draw me closer to you in and through this letter to the Philippian church. Amen. So this letter is uh, about a lot more than just a few sound bites. Uh, but the truth is that these sort of iconic verses that, that many of us know and love, many of us uh, memorized when we were younger, are actually sort of like pillars upon which the whole structure, the whole framework of the letter is formed. And so they are these kind of anchors that we see these, these great themes bubbling up in the letter. As I do um, each series that we we preach through a book of the Bible, I'm going to challenge you to read it. Yes, you'll hear parts of it on Sunday morning. We're not going to read through the entire letter over this series here on Sunday morning. And we need to do that. So read it. It it is not very long. It is four chapters long. Uh, My challenge to you would, would be to read it every week, the whole letter every week, not just what we're sort of preparing for next Sunday, so that it continues to wash over you, so that you're immersed in the letter to the Philippians. It is a letter, by the way, and it's a personal letter. It's a letter between the Apostle Paul and one of his protégés, Timothy. They collectively write it together, and they write to the church in Philippi, And again, even though it was written 2,000 years ago, two millennia ago, it is maybe as relevant today as it was then. In fact, I think especially of all Paul's letters, Philippians is one of the most timely and pertinent to our culture right now. So here's my one sentence summary for the book of Philippians. We'll come back to it throughout the series. Paul is writing to the Philippian church on how to be the people of God in a world that doesn't understand the gospel. That's pretty important. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think largely we live in a culture and a society that doesn't understand the logic of the gospel. It seems foreign to them. It seems strange and weird to them. And Paul is saying, look, in a culture like that, this is how you ought to live. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to give you uh, some background on the book or the letter. Um, we call them books. It's really a letter. I'm going to give you a, a really brief sort of intro and outline of, of the whole letter itself. Um, and then we're going to get to the first 11 verses. I'm going to give you a little outline of the first 11 verses, what Paul's trying to do in this sort of uh, greeting in his letter to the Philippian church. So let's talk about background. Um, when we're reading the mail of someone else, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this. I'm very familiar with reading other people's mail. I just go through it all the time. Uh, no, most of us don't open up other people's letters, do we? But, but this is more than just sort of an abstract theological treatise that Paul sits down and says, all right, I need to instruct the Philippians in all the deepest theological things. No, Paul is saying, I'm writing to my friends in Philippi. This is um, intimate. It's, it's personal. It's, it's vulnerable, right? The, the amazing thing about God's Word is that even though uh, it's an intimate, personal, vulnerable letter to a specific... specific try that again. Specific, or Pacific, whatever you want. Specific context in the ancient world, it's still speaking to us now. So... Uh, Who wrote the letter? Well, as you can see on the front of the envelope, it's Paul and Timothy. Uh, There's really no question about this. Some of Paul's letters, scholars debate, you know, oh, maybe it wasn't Paul that wrote it. Uh, Philippians is one of those letters that everyone's like, yeah, it definitely was. He says it was, it sounds like Paul. Um, We pretty much know that it was Paul and Timothy who wrote it. So sometimes I'm going to just refer to the author as Paul I'm not trying to exclude Timothy. Sometimes I'll try to say they or them, and it's not a pronoun thing. I'm just trying to include both of them in here, all right? Where where were they writing to? Well, I've already said it was to uh, Philippi, to the Philippian church. So a little geography for you. By the way, I found that this new clicker has a toy on it. Ooh. And I'm basically a cat. So uh, I've been weaponized, and I will use it even if you're falling asleep. All right? So just for some context, uh, we got Rome, right about there. We got Athens, right about there. We got Jerusalem right about there. This is Philippi, the Aegean Sea, right there, uh, in what we would call today sort of northern Greece. Um, before Paul's time, it was uh, Macedonia, or the Macedon kingdom. So it's on an incredibly important road. In fact, that's really why Philippi grows to be this, this really important center in the ancient world. The road that it's on is it was called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatian Way. You might have heard of that before. One of the most famous roads ever built. It goes east-west. This is it today. Uh, it's still in many parts. You can see the Roman paving. It's quite amazing. The road was about 850 kilometers long. It stretched all the way from the Adriatic all the way to Byzantium. So you think about the trade routes, right? Get to Byzantium, you're on the Black Sea, you can get to the Silk Route, you can go all the way east, all the way to the Pacific from there. But you got to get back to the Adriatic so that you can get stuff from Italy over to that trade route, right? And so they picked this spot because it's really the best uh, seafaring route, shortest trip across the Adriatic from port to port so they could ship things across and then they built this amazing 850-kilometer road. Philippi lands directly on that road. It's not actually on the Aegean. It's not on the sea. It's about 15 kilometers inset, so north of the sea. The city that's on the the, uh, Aegean Sea there uh, used to be called Neapolis. You can see it on the map. It's now called Kavala. Philippi now looks like this. (laughs) Really cool. It's one of the greatest, largest archaeological sites in this part of the world. It's unbelievable the things that they have found in Philippi. So, like that or like this. This is me just really trying to get you to understand that we should all go. We should go. Wouldn't that be epic? It's like, oh, the whole church, they just up and came and visited. It's actually a a world UNESCO heritage site. Archeo- archaeologists are still constantly digging and working and finding things around there. The, the Via Ignatia still runs through it, although the highway that they built is now called, um, the, the something Ignatia after the old Roman road. And it runs just beside it. In fact, I think in that you can see it right there. That's the new Via Ignatia. So if it doesn't entice you, if you're like, archaeology site, not really what I want to go and do. Remember that city, Neapolis, the port city that I told you, just 15 kilometers away? It's now called Kavala. It looks like this. Yeah, see? The other half of you are like, oh, now I'm going. Now I'm going. There's some islands nearby, right? The city itself, uh, Philippi, unsurprisingly, was uh, founded by a king named Philip. Yeah? No? Okay. You'll get it at some point. Um... It was founded in about 350 B.C. Now, uh, King Philip supposedly looked like this. King Philip of Macedon. Uh, the story goes that he was in battle and was shot with an arrow right through his eyeball and pulled it out. Beast mode, totally. And so uh, when they minted the gold coins with Philip's face on it, he made sure that they got the good side. Let's do this coin profile, huh? Yeah. Uh, Anyone know why Philip is really famous, though? I think I heard it. Son? Yeah. That's right. Alexander the Great. This is the father of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, of course, is Greek, but he's really Macedonian. Northern Greek had its own kingdom at the time. I think it's a sort of fitting place Uh, for the gospel first to be preached in what we would call Europe. Because it's founded by this great king and this lineage of of kings there. And so it's the first place, very first place, in what we call Europe that they got to hear that there's a new king. That King Jesus is being announced. So, uh, Philippi is a really small settlement on the road until a couple centuries later, after it's founded, When um, Octavian and Mark Anthony actually fight, they battle on the plains of Philippi against Brutus and Cassius. So if you know your Roman history, Brutus and Cassius assassinate Julius Caesar in 44 B.C., and then they run because they're scared, right? And all the Senate is looking for them. And um, Octavian and Mark Anthony meet them on the plains of Philippi, just outside that archaeological site that we just saw. And there's this epic sort of Civil War battle that goes on. So why this is important. It is important. So um, Octavian and Mark Anthony win, defeat Brutus and Cassius. Civil war is done. Rome sort of settles down. But there's all of these Roman soldiers just standing around in Macedon, northern Greece. And they want to know what they're going to do. The war's over. So instead, Octavian says, instead of sending them back to Rome, which is actually in sort of instability and unrest because Julius Caesar is dead, that's probably not a good recipe. Send thousands of soldiers back to Rome when it's in unrest. So he says, you know what? You should make Philippi your home. And so from about 40 BC, we have this uh, growing Roman colony. It's the most Roman place in all of Greece. In fact, Latin is the native language of Philippi. Even though all around it, is Greek. And there's all of these Roman soldiers that settle there. And so it's maybe a a little bit more sort of uh, upper class than the cities around it. And they stay there. In fact, it becomes so Roman that the Greeks call Philippi Little Rome. And the Romans love it because when they travel the Via Ignatia, it's like ah, a little piece of home halfway to Byzantium. So that sort of gives you some color, some context for for this place that Paul visits when he goes there to spread the gospel. The book of Acts actually recounts Paul's travel to Philippi. He he, um, has a vision that draws him to to Macedonia. I was going to sort of talk about that a little bit, and then I realized it's in Acts chapter 16. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been preaching through the book of Acts uh, slowly, one series at a time, five chapters at a time, every year. And it just so happens that this January, we are picking the book of Acts back up in Acts chapter 16. So, I'm going to leave that aside, and we'll pick it up then. If you want a little slice of northern Macedon. This is actually in a neighboring city. Uh, it's an out, outdoor monument in Berea one of the other Macedonian cities that Paul visits. And this is the sort of vision that Paul receives calling him to Macedonia. All right, finally, where was Paul when he wrote this? Well, actually, this one's, this one's a little bit of a debate. For like 1,900 years, people said, well, he's in prison. We know that. He's in chains. And we just assume that he's in Rome right here. And then about, I don't know, 100, 150 years ago, some scholars started to say, well, you know, there's some things that maybe don't make a lot of sense, and it would take a lot of time to get there, and he says he wants to come see them, but when he was in Rome, he says he wants to go to Spain, and so that doesn't make sense, and, and so they said, well, maybe he was in chains somewhere else, and we think, we think he was probably in prison, uh, in Ephesus for a time, and we think some of the language used, maybe he was in Caesarea. Uh, if you want my opinion, which is, not really worth anything because I'm not an expert in this area. Uh, I'm not really convinced. It seems to me that probably Rome is the most likely place that Paul is in. Does it matter? Probably not either. So what makes this letter particularly unique for Paul? It's that level of intimacy and delight that he has with the Philippians. No other letter is Paul so affectionate To his recipients as this one in verse 7 of the first chapter he says I have you in my heart it's beautiful sort of almost romantic statement isn't it in fact it's it's a reflexive uh saying and so some translations will have it flipped and it says you have me in your heart I think Paul uses that purposely here he wants to say look there's reciprocity here (laughs) You love me deeply, you have supported me, you have guided me, and I love you deeply. You have me in your heart, I have you in my heart. And, and the very next verse, he says, God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's beautiful too, right? the affection of Christ Jesus. It's beautiful until you hear the Greek term used for affection, splanknos. It's like a little less romantic, right? doesn't just like roll off the tongue. Splanknos. And then when you hear what splanknos means, it's even more confusing because it means entrails or bowels. God can testify how I long for you with my bowels. Doesn't quite strike the same chord, does it? Right? Uh, but if you really think about it, what Paul is saying here, was very common, in the ancient Near East, in the Greek. He's saying, look, my my deepest, most being. The seat of of everything that is me longs for you, aches for you, desires good for you, wants to be with you. That makes it a little bit more bearable. Friends, the the church in Philippi is far from perfect, as we're going to see. It seems to be wracked with division. Unity seems to be a constant problem in Philippi. There's, there's very clearly at least a false teacher that is spreading lies and rumors. Maybe two, maybe even three different false teachers. We can't quite discern exactly the teachings that Paul is pushing against, especially in chapter 3. And they're, they're suffering. So they were known for their gold mines That's why the gold coin is so appropriate. But the gold mines weren't doing great. And there's a drought in the land when Paul is writing. And things are not exactly going tickety-boo. So all of these things are going on in the background to this letter. Paul and Timothy are writing to this church. They're desperately trying to get them to understand what it means to live out the Gospel in this context, in this culture. So here's my 30-second overview of the whole letter. It's pretty simple. Paul starts off, this is our passage this morning, uh, by saying thank you. Which is funny because he never actually says thank you to them. But the whole context of the first 11 verses is sort of this extended thank you for your continuing support. We know that they actually they, they supported Paul financially. They gave him gifts. And then he moves on he says, look, here's a little update. Here's what's going on with me. They he says, uh, now to what I really wrote for you. Now, now what I really want to remind you of. And by the way, the answer is Jesus. So, you know, and then at the end he says, look, you got to stick it out. It is tough. Things are not going great, but you got to stick it out. And when you stick it out, you got to stick together. And so there's this theme again of unity that he pulls back in. So what about these first 11 verses? The verses we're looking at this morning, uh, I want to break it down into a little bit of an overview like this an outline again he he gives greetings in verse 1 and 2 he talks about his gratitude without saying thank you but he's still grateful for them and then he talks about his affection we just read that piece and then he has this prayer from verses 9 10 and 11 in the first chapter he prays for them and it looks a little bit like this greetings in an ancient letter especially in a roman culture uh, there was a, a preformed thing you know that little paper clip that pops up in word when you're writing a letter and you're like that is so annoying just close it are you writing a letter let me show you how to write a letter right well the romans had that too it was a very prescribed form that they would use especially the greeting and it would look like this it would say paul and timothy to the church in philippi greetings and it would actually say greetings Karain is the greek word And this is how we found hundreds and hundreds of Roman letters from this time, and they all start the very same way. Paul modifies it just just a little bit in his greeting. First, uh, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ. He wants them to know exactly who they are. Yes, they're Paul and Timothy, they're friends, but fundamentally they are slaves of Jesus Christ. It's interesting here. You know, there's only three letters that Paul identifies himself in his writing as a slave, doulas. The other two letters, Romans and Titus, he immediately, very quickly, also identifies himself as an apostle. (laughs) Slave of Jesus Christ. Oh, and remember, I'm an apostle. I have authority. But to the Philippian church, he doesn't. He leaves it. He just says, look, I know that you know that I have authority. But you need to be reminded that ultimately we are slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, not many folks add that to their social media bio, slave of Jesus Christ. And um, it's, it's understandable. I mean, we get nervous with this term because of the horror that we know that has been sort of perpetrated through this dehumanizing institution known as slavery. Aristotle defined a slave as a living tool, as in Something to be used and abused at the owner's discretion. But that's not really Paul's usage here. What he means to convey is is not sort of a dehumanizing side of slavery, but but just the opposite. Paul's claim is that he is most fully alive. He is is most fully human when, when his life is actually aligned with the will and the call of his creator, his owner. That is what slavery means to him. When God's call on his life aligns and becomes his life's mission. And then he modifies the second part. To the church in Philippi, he says, uh, all the church. They identify some offices in the church, some roles. But ultimately, Paul and Timothy are saying, this is for everyone. Not just some select few leaders in the community. This letter is for all of you. And then instead of greetings, karen, he changes it just ever so slightly to karis, grace. Not greetings I give you, but grace I send you, I bless you with. It's a prayer. Grace and peace to you. And then after the greeting, uh, he turns to gratitude for them. And actually this piece of gratitude is, is a look back. I look back at their relationship together, the intimacy that they had. I told you that the Philippian church we know supported Paul in and through his ministry. They supported him when things were going great. They sent money when things were going well with them. And they supported him when things were not going well with Paul. When he was in chains in prison. And when things were not going well with them. When they were destitute, they still sent support and money. Through thick and thin, you have been generous to my ministry. So the word used here is partnership. You, friends, have been partners with me in the ministry that I've done in spreading the gospel. The word is koinonia in the Greek. And This matters more than the money. Right? That's what Paul is saying. The, the money is great. And it's wonderful that you've been supporting with the, me with money. But what I really care about is that you are my partners in this. Koinonia. You have been faithful in the past. And then, in verse 7 and 8, He turns to the present. They are, again, fellow sharers in this ministry. You see that koinonia in there? soon koinonia? You continue to be. So you are partners in the past of this ministry of evangelism that I have. Now you are fellow sharers. You are with me in partnership in... And we sort of expect Him to say in this work, in this evangelism... In this task, in this calling, in this mission. And Paul says, in this grace again. You see, everything that we're doing, all this slavery for our owner, all of this calling on our life, all of this mission is actually grace that God has given us. It's a gift to us that we have received this calling in our lives. So partnership in the past, thank you. More partnership in the present. And then in verse 9 to 11, he talks about the future. So my family read a short devotional of Sojourner Truth this week at home. This great life of this abolitionist and evangelist. Her name, by the way, is self-chosen after uh, her freedom was purchased by some Quakers. Her name is uh, appropriate to her mission, her calling, and her life. One of her most famous sayings is this. She said, I feel safe in the midst of my enemies for the truth is all-powerful and will prevail. <laughs> Beautiful saying. The, the letter to the Philippians is a wonderful example of that fulfilled promise that we looked about at just a couple weeks ago. That promise of a future. You see, Paul's in chains. And at the time, the Roman emperor is Nero. Now, we now live in a world where people name their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. all right? But I guarantee you, in 55 A.D., that was not the case. You think about what an amazing reversal this is. From, from this man in obscure Rome in, in jail, in chains, writing an obscure letter to the Philippian church in 55 A.D. and the great emperor Nero... And now 2,000 years later, we have seen how the truth has prevailed. Here's the best part. When it, when it comes to the future of this passage, Paul doesn't sort of lay out a one-year plan or a five-year plan or, or even a 2,000-year plan on how to win friends and influence people, how to have babies named after you. That's not what he's trying to do, right? No, his, his prayer for the future for the Philippians is, is much more immediate and much more eternal at the same time he says my prayer is is that you can prioritize what is important in this life that you can figure out what actually matters in your life day to day and then he says so that at the end at the end of all things you can arrive there knowing that you have lived right so there's sort of this immediate part of the future but also this eternal part and then in verse 11 he says but more than both of these things it's actually not about you my, my prayer for your future is that you would recognize that your life is not about you we are slaves of Jesus Christ everything we do is to bring glory to God's name so I told you the sort of overarching theme of the letter is this How to be the people of God in a world that doesn't understand the gospel. And already here, in his opening greetings, Paul is sort of laying out what that might look like. To be the people of God is to bring glory to God in how we live. In every piece of how we live. How we order our lives. In fact, in the first 11 verses of Philippians, Paul and Timothy are doing much more than just exchanging pleasantries. They're setting the table for a feast. He's introduced, he, they have introduced every single major theme that we're going to see in the rest of the book or the letter to the Philippian church. Every major theme in the rest of the book, Paul and Timothy have packed in to this introduction. Just as little teasers, little trailers to say, hey, pay attention. I'm going to tell you this. I'm not going to tell you all about this, but I'm going to tell it to you later. So we have uh, these themes like partnership and love and prayer and gifts and gospel and truth and knowledge and unity and discernment. What caught me most about this passage this morning is that there are tensions within these themes. And so I I want to pull out three tensions for us to pay attention to for the rest of the series as we look at this letter. The first tension is there seems to be this tension between unity and holiness that we have. There's these great unity sections at the end of chapter 1 and then again in chapter 2. But it's already being introduced here. Koinonia, we talked about that term. Common sharing, partnership, participation, co-laboring. It gets, it gets translated as all of these different words. So verse 5 in, in chapter 1 says, Because of your partnership, koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now, Verse 7 says, whether I'm in chains or de- and defending the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Again, same term. And this term is often translated as, as fellowship, which is appropriate. It's, it's a fine term to use. But the problem is, as Christians, as the church, we've, we've often overused this term or maybe even misused this term. I love what Fred Craddock says. For the church today to announce a meeting for the purpose of fellowship is, an, is in essence to promise all attending that there will be no serious business, no worship, and no work. That's what we think when we hear fellowship. And, and trust me, I know this. Chantel and I used to go to a church, and after we worshiped together, everyone was invited back to this little room at the back of the church for fellowship hour. And it was delightful. It was lovely. There was these uh, little like tapioca sticky Filipino treats that I still dream about a little bit. They were so delicious. And there was bad coffee. And you would give side hugs. And you would talk about, I don't know, small talk. What happened in your week. And this was fellowship. right? But it's not. That's not what Paul is talking about. In fact, what Paul is talking about is, is almost exactly the opposite. He says, look, when I say koinonia, when I say fellowship, you will know that these three things will be there. There will be serious business. There will be worship, and you better believe that there will be work. So, why is this intention with holiness? I think, especially in our culture, uh, we often see holiness in a, a sort of hyper individualistic sort of way. Oh, the holy person, the holy man, or the holy woman, right? We think of holiness and Christ likeness as this uh, individual pursuit, this sport, right? And so we think of things like this. This is from the eastern part of the church. This is uh, Simeon the Stylite. Stylite just means column. On the, I'm going to use my toy. On the left is Simeon the Stylite, the elder, and on the right is Simeon the Stylite, the younger. And they both lived atop these columns. And the higher the column, the closer you were to God, right? And they were very ascetic, and they didn't eat very much. And they were the holy men of the East. And look, in, in the Western church, we may not have stylites that we sort of say, oh, look at these saints. But we have it metaphorically. People that we sort of put up on a pedestal, right? Oh, look how holy they are. And holiness is, is almost completely divorced from unity in our discussions. We've missed a part of the central point of being a follower of Jesus that as we grow in love together, we also grow in love with God. And in fact, we can't really grow in love with God. It's it's perpetually stunted if we don't grow in love together. Maybe impossible. Think back to that introduction, to the greeting. You see why Paul makes it such a point of saying to all the Holy Ones in Philippi. He's talking about unity and he's talking about holiness. The Holy Ones is the whole church. The entire congregation. Anyone who has been united to Christ. Verse 6 and verse 10 of the first chapter, Paul reminds the Philippians that their holiness is partial. Yes, they are holy ones. They are saints. But it hasn't been brought to completion. There's this sort of already, not yet, pull on it. The holiness Paul is talking about here in the letter isn't a final and complete state. It is their journey toward holiness. And if you're going to journey toward holiness, it has to be together, he says. We journey together in unity. Even even as we might be different places along the path of this journey, we go together in unity. So how are we to be the people of God? That question that he's asking that underlies the whole letter. We pursue holiness together. Together we pursue holiness. And then there's this tension of the themes knowing and doing. In verse 9 he says, and this is my prayer. This is how he starts that prayer for the future for them. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, he just told them how much he loved them in verses 7 and 8. Remember, it's blank noise, right? Affection. For many of us, this idea is that first we have to have knowledge, and then we can love. I have to know someone or something, and then I can love it. But Paul actually starts to invert this. Now, he doesn't flip it entirely. He he builds this sort of chicken and egg cycle for us. He says, no, they're, they're mutually informing. Yes, you, you, you love, and then you know. And the more you know, the more you can discern. And the more you discern, the better you can live. And the better you live, well, that just means the more you love. And the more you love, the more you seek knowledge and seek discernment. And the more you seek discernment, the more you love. And it goes round and round and round. The word for think is used 10 times in this short letter. Paul cares about how and what we think. It's only used 13 other times by Paul in his writings. More than any other letter, Paul talks about the mind, knowledge, thinking, discernment. It seems clear that uh, Paul is suggesting that in order to be mature followers of Jesus, uh, we might seek to better understand exactly what it means to love each other. That is, how we live best, how how we be the people of God together, only grows as our knowledge grows. That we have to know the truth at a deeper level so that we can love at a deeper level. It's like Paul is saying, love might actually not look like you think it looks. Love has, has a shape, has contours, has structure and a framework. It's not this sort of formless sentimentalism. It's not, well, you know, do whatever you think or do whatever you feel like. That's not love. That's actually the opposite of love. So being learners of the way will also lead to this wise and discerning love. How do we love better? Holiness and unity, knowing and doing, and finally, Paul introduces The theme of our series, or at least the title, Joyful, Suffering and Joy. Remember, he's in prison. He's in chains. Prison wasn't actually like you got sentenced to go to prison in the Roman world. Prison was where you waited for trial. You didn't actually get sentenced to prison. You got sentenced to floggings, beatings, manual labor, slavery, death, crucifixion, that's what you got sentenced to if you were guilty. So prison was this waiting place, and it was not a pleasant waiting place. There was no this sort of innocent until proven guilty like our culture. No, they didn't even feed you. You were on your own, but you were in chains. And so you were completely dependent on other people. And it's not like Paul is just sort of being nostalgic in writing this. And he's thinking about, oh, wasn't it wonderful when I was with the Philippian church? It was such a great time and things were good and I'm just thinking about the joy that I shared when I was with them. No, we know this because in the letter to the Thessalonian church, he writes, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you His gospel in the face of strong opposition. Over and over again, in this letter, Paul will say, look, it's in the midst of. It's not a lack of. It's in the midst of suffering that we find joy. Paul can talk about joy more in this little letter than any other letter he writes. 14 times. Joy or rejoice. He only writes it 36 times in the rest of his writings. Paul and Timothy don't offer any simple or simplistic answers to the evils that cause suffering in the world they don't try to explain them away they don't try to ignore them they don't try to make light of them instead through this letter they reframe them and they say something like this we should always see our sufferings and hardship in light of the gospel not the gospel in light of our sufferings and hardships let me say that again we should always see our sufferings in light of the gospel, not the gospel in light of our sufferings. Because hardships don't contradict the gospel, Paul insists. The gospel actually contradicts the hardships. Because God cannot and will not abandon the good work that he has started. Verse 6, very start of the whole letter, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So quite simply, joy is not tied to any human circumstances. Joy is not tied to the future that he prays for, except in the fact that he prays for the glory of God to be known. Joy is tied to the progress of the gospel itself. Over and over again, Paul decenters us from our own life and reminds us that, that if we are united with Christ and we are slaves to Him, so then our mission, our life, our calling aligns with Him and we will find joy in this reality. So how are we to be the people of God in a world that doesn't understand the Gospel? We hold these things in tension. Unity and holiness. Knowing and doing. Suffering and joy. Let me close with The words of uh, Cyprian. Cyprian was a a North African Christian, a bishop in the North African church in the third century, way back. Cyprian wasn't born a Christian. He was a Berber, but he had a very classical Latin education, very highly educated. In fact, uh, people still study his Latin, his rhetoric from that time. Very well educated, came from a very wealthy family, good upbringing, healthy family, Uh, Cyprian tried all the pleasures of youth that the Roman Empire had to offer. He felt no joy. In adulthood, he became a Christian, and then he became a pastor, and then he becomes a bishop, an overseer of pastors in all of North Africa, in Carthage. And near the end of his life, just before he was martyred, killed for his faith, under the emperor Valerian, He wrote these words, which to me uh, confirm so many of the themes that we just brought up in the book of Philippians. He writes to his friend Donatus. He says, It's a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it, a quiet and good people who have learned the great secret of life. They have found a joy and wisdom which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life they're despised and persecuted. They are suffering, but they do not care. For they are masters of their own souls. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are Christians. And I am one of them. Let's pray. Father, may that be our prayer this morning. That in spite of the circumstances we find ourselves in, in spite of any suffering, any persecution, that your joy would overflow and overwhelm our lives, that we would find peace in a world of chaos. In a broken world, we would find wholeness in you. And then everything we do in our life would bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.